Good morning. My name is Taylor. I'm one of the pastors here at High Rock, and I serve at our Metro West campus. I'm so glad to be with you today. Some of you may be familiar with a slightly more famous Taylor. I'm sorry to say I probably can't quite measure up to that bar today, but I'll certainly do my best. Hopefully better than Travis Kelsey's rendition of Viva Las Vegas at the Super Bowl, though. This morning, I have the privilege of preaching on what is easily one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture. It's so well known that even people who know next to nothing else about the Bible know the main gist of this story. This story might actually be more famous than Taylor Swift. It's become so ubiquitous that we even refer to people who help others as Good Samaritans. There are even Good Samaritan laws in many places. In fact, this was famously part of the plot of the Seinfeld series finale, which was itself historical, just not in a good way. (laughs) Unlike the Seinfeld finale, though, the parable of the Good Samaritan has aged very well. Talk about a timeless story. Here we are, 2,000-odd years after Jesus first told it, and we're still talking about it. Does that strike you as curious? I've heard a lot of stories in my life, and some of them I easily forget, and others I'll remember for years, decades even. I imagine that's probably true for you as well. I mean, just about every family I've ever met has stories that get passed down from one generation to the next. And some stories, they stand the test of time. And others, well, they don't. Do you ever wonder why some stories tend to captivate us and others just don't? I was listening to an interview with Malcolm Gladwell recently, and he was reflecting on what makes for a captivating narrative. And his response was that good stories betray our expectations. In other words, they surprise us in some way. Well, that definition certainly fits the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I would add one other key ingredient, which is that good stories are able to draw us into the narrative so that we imagine ourselves in the story. We see ourselves in the characters. We identify with them. We feel what they feel. We care about what they care about. Sometimes, even in particularly great stories, we can imagine ourselves as the characters. After the Hunger Games first came out, there was a surge of interest in archery clubs, particularly from girls who clearly wanted to be the next Katniss Everdeen. Now, I'm a huge Star Wars nerd, and I will admit that I have a hard time not imagining myself as a Jedi. My wife has told me a few times that, yes, apparently, it is going too far if I buy myself a replica lightsaber, but I think the jury is still out on that one. So let me ask you a question. When you hear the parable of the Good Samaritan, who do you identify with? For me, I'll tell you who I want to identify with. I mean, of course, I want to be the hero. Who wouldn't want that? When I read this story, I think to myself, can you believe that priest and the Levite just left the guy there? What jerks? I'd never do that. I'm a good person. I love Jesus. I'd totally stop and help the guy in the ditch. And then my mind starts to wander about all the fame and acclaim I'd get for doing something heroic. Soon I'm imagining myself on morning shows being interviewed as a hero and there's a parade in my honor. Yep. I'd totally save the day, and I'd even look good doing it. I can see the headlines now. Local pastor saves the day. At least, that's what I told myself until I actually had a chance to be like the Good Samaritan and just watched the pitch go by. In the previous church I served, it was fairly common 
for people to drop by the office and chat without an appointment. And I loved to chat with people when I had time. But on days when I was working on a sermon, it could present a bit of a challenge. And so I got in the habit of working from a coffee shop on days when I was writing so that, well, I wouldn't be interrupted. And on one of those days, I was all set up at a coffee shop working on my sermon. I had my headphones in and I was furiously typing away. And up walks a stranger who somehow deduced that I was a pastor and struck up a conversation. Maybe the stacks of commentaries in the open Bible tipped them off. Anyways, I could tell they wanted to have a long conversation. They were asking big, open-ended theological questions about the Bible, and it was pretty clear they were a skeptic. I only had a few hours left to finish the sermon. I was running behind that week, and so I did everything in my power, short of being outright rude, to conclude that conversation as quickly as I could. They got the hint and took their to-go cup, and they were on their way, and I went back to writing my sermon. It took about five seconds for the realization of what I had done to sink in. Here I was, writing a sermon for a group of lovely people, but folks who already knew Jesus. And here was someone who, from my best guess, wasn't a Christian, and was asking about Jesus, and I just brushed them off. immediately the parable of the Good Samaritan came to mind. Sure, this person wasn't lying in a ditch mortally wounded, but they were clearly spiritually curious and in need. And here I was, a pastor, who left them by the side of the road. I was too busy to allow myself to be interrupted, interrupted by the very sort of opportunity I pray for and in theory that I long for, an opportunity to get to know somebody who doesn't know Jesus and share the good news of the gospel with them. So maybe I'm not the hero of this story after all. Oof. Have you ever had an experience like this? It's so easy to imagine ourselves as heroes, as people who make big sacrifices for love. Yet more often than not, the sacrifices we can make for the sake of love aren't big, heroic gestures. They're just small, unremarkable, everyday acts of faithful care and attention. I was perfectly willing to get up in front of a group of people and teach about love and sacrifice, and yet here was a small, tangible opportunity right in front of me. And well, I just watched the pitch go by. Worse even, I was resentful that I was even in the batter's box to begin with. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. It's so much easier to keep love in the realm of theory, or to water it down in some way or another, because real love, true Christ-like love, is often far costlier than we're comfortable with. It's too expensive. And so we settle for cheap substitutes and alternatives, like talking about it rather than living it. But as we all know, talk is cheap. And as much as I'd love to tell you, be able to tell you that J-Lo was telling the truth in her 2001 smash hit, Love Don't Cost a Thing, I think we all know, that love can actually be quite costly. Sentiment is cheap, but love? Love's expensive. It takes our time, it takes emotional investment and vulnerability, and yes, oftentimes it even has a financial cost. And in a world of finite resources, it's so easy to close ourselves off to the cost of real love, Christ-like love, because of a fear that it will just take too much from us. Even if that cost is just a few minutes of our time or a simple willingness to be interrupted. 
How often do we miss a meaningful connection because we're glued to our smartphones? Or perhaps it's a coworker or a friend or maybe a child who when you ask how they're doing, you get the sense that when they say, fine, they don't really mean it. But you don't push any further because, well, we're busy. So often, I find myself looking for what I call a Goldilocks solution. I want to offer just enough love to look good, but not so much as to actually burden myself in any real way. Not, not too selfish, but not too selfless either. I'm looking for that happy medium that's just right. Somewhere between Mother Teresa and Ebenezer Scrooge. Maybe just a little bit more loving than the next person so I can feel good about myself. This, to me, is essentially what the expert in the law is asking for Jesus when he asks him, who is my neighbor? Because what he isn't saying, but is clearly asking, isn't just an abstract theological curiosity. He's trying to be clever. Because if he can define who is his neighbor, then he can also figure out who isn't his neighbor. In other words, who can he write off as not his problem, not his responsibility? He's trying to find that Goldilocks solution where he doesn't have to do anything more than he has to. It's a C's get degrees kind of mindset. Now, the thing about this sort of question is it reveals a posture of the heart, which is often more revealing than we'd like it to be. Now, it pains me to say this, but this describes my natural inclinations far more than I'd care to admit. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Jesus' response is nothing short of brilliant. In the typical rabbinical style, he responds with a story and with a question. He responds with a parable or a short fictional story meant to teach us something true. A modern equivalent might be the story of the boy who cried wolf. It's not a true story, but it certainly does contain truth. Now, this parable takes place on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, which was a notoriously dangerous and winding road where bandits were known to lay in wait to ambush vulnerable travelers. In this story, someone we don't know anything about is set upon by robbers who beat him, strip him naked, and leave him half dead by the side of the road. Now, in just about any place, this would be a bad situation, but on the road to Jericho, even worse. Not only was the road itself dangerous, it was a desert climate and he would have been exposed to the harsh desert sun. Dehydration would have become a concern within hours. It's not as if cell phones and emergency responders were a thing back then. So this person, they were in dire straits. He was alone and several hours from the nearest help on a road that most people avoided if they could. Things were not looking good. But he's in luck. Someone comes down the road, and not just anyone, a priest of all people. Surely the priest will save him. But no. He passes by the other side of the road, careful to keep his distance. And then again, another time, th this time it's a Levite whose job it is to help out at the temple, but he too passes by on the other side of the road. Now, the text doesn't tell us why. 
they pass by, or why they ignored this man who was in a life or death situation. Some scholars over the centuries have posited that because they were traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, that they would have just finished their rotation of duties at the temple in Jerusalem, and that they would be mindful not to become ritually unclean by helping someone who was bloodied, and, and they didn't want to have to go through all the arduous, necessary steps of ritual purification again. Maybe. I mean, it's, it's certainly plausible, but the thing is, the text doesn't say. And in my view, the text doesn't say because if there was an answer, then isn't that what we'd focus on? We debate endlessly about what other things in our lives today qualify or don't qualify to get us off the hook for helping. Instead of having good Samaritan laws, we then have priest and Levite laws, which would explain in great detail when someone could be morally and legally excused from helping. So let me ask you this. What are the excuses that you use to tell yourself why it's okay when you choose not to help? For me, it's often some combination of what Pastor Megan preached on a few weeks ago. I feel like I either don't have enough time, enough money, or enough energy. Yet the point of this story is that there isn't an excuse that passes muster. The point isn't why they might have been motivated not to care. The point is that they didn't care and there just isn't a reason good enough to justify that. As the theologian James Keenan wrote, sin is the failure to bother to love. So are we supposed to identify with the priest and the Levite then? Well, yes and no. I mean, I certainly do identify with them. There have been many more instances in my life beyond just that one time where I brushed off that person in a coffee shop. But is that who we're supposed to identify with? Is that how Jesus wants us to understand this parable? Well, as I said, yes and no. On one hand, this parable should be convicting. It should be challenging. It should make us uncomfortable because who among us hasn't at some point or another chosen comfort, safety, convenience, or distance from someone else in need. Love and solidarity are costly, and oftentimes we'd rather just look the other way. I know I've done this before. So on that level, yes, we should see this story through the lens of the priest and the Levite. But if that's where we leave things, well, that's a pretty bleak and judgmental picture. I don't know about you, but that doesn't leave me feeling particularly hopeful. Guilty? Yes, but not terribly hopeful. I once heard the Christian author and activist Shane Claiborne say that guilt, guilt is a great indicator, but it's a terrible motivator. Now, thankfully, the story, though, it just doesn't end there because along comes a Samaritan. The text says that he had pity on the man and he took and bandaged his wounds, poured oil on them. Oil, by the way, was something both a priest and a Levite returning from the temple duty would likely have had on their person. Then the Samaritan man goes even further. He puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, and covers the cost of his care for the next few days. Because this story has become so ubiquitous that we refer to people who help others as good Samaritans, that term, good Samaritan, probably doesn't sound all, all that strange to our ears. The thing is, though, in the context when Jesus first told this story, there was nothing good about Samaritans, at least not from a Jewish perspective. Samaritans were a heretical offshoot of Judaism, and instead of worshiping in the temple in Jerusalem, they worshiped on Mount Gerizim, which that may sound like a trivial difference to our ears, 
But in that difference is the gulf between Montagues and Capulets, Afrikaners and black South Africans, Israelis and Palestinians, Serbs and Croats. Did you notice how at the end of the story, the lawyer, when answering Jesus' question of who was a neighbor, he doesn't say the Samaritan. But instead, he says, the one who helped him. He can't even bring himself to name the Samaritan. This was not a minor difference of opinion on which two groups simply agree to disagree. This is a story about crossing boundaries for the sake of love in more ways than one. When we see that the hero of the story is someone from a rival ethnic and religious group, we can all sort of intuit that part of the story. Jesus is teaching us that love transcends boundaries. But the story goes even deeper than that. Yes, it's radical that a Samaritan can be considered a moral exemplar, but that's only half the story. If we read closely, you'll notice that the man who was beaten wasn't just stripped of his clothes. He was stripped of nearly every marker that could have been used to sort him and categorize him into various different groups. He was beaten, meaning he was likely swollen and disfigured. Was he a Jew or a Samaritan? Hard to tell. Well, was he wearing Jewish clothing? Was he a soldier or a Samaritan or an Arab? He was stripped naked. No way to know there. Did he have an accent? Did he speak Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek? He's unconscious. He can't speak. He could be one of ours, or he could be one of theirs. The man in the ditch is a stand-in for a generic human being who can't be sorted. He's the perfect litmus test for how much we care about our fellow human beings. His ambiguous identity means that helping him wasn't just costly, it was risky. The ambiguity isn't a coincidence. All right, well, we could end the story there. The point of the story can accurately be summed up as love transcends boundaries, love is costly, but be willing to pay the cost and go and do likewise. That isn't wrong. But I suspect that if that is where we left things, it would make almost zero impact in our lives. That message resonates pretty well these days in the age of anti-racism and inclusion, which are all good things. And this text certainly aligns with those ideologies. But, but, if that's all we take from this, we'd actually be missing the most crucial part. I don't mean to be cynical, but I've heard more sermons on the parable of the Good Samaritan in my lifetime than I can even remember. And yet, in that moment in the coffee shop where a person who was hungry for Jesus was standing right before me, my knowledge of the story didn't make any difference, did it? Simply knowing that I should be like the Good Samaritan didn't make a hill of beans of difference. I already wanted to be the hero, and yet that desire didn't translate into action when the moment came. So knowing that I should didn't change anything. We all want to be like the Good Samaritan. But when we come up against the enormity of the needs around us, we quickly find the limits of our own capacity to love. And let's be real, it's not super helpful for me or anyone to simply say, well, just love more. If that worked, we probably wouldn't need church every week. This would be a once and done sort of thing. No, there's something about us, something within us that fundamentally needs to change if we want to increase our capacity to love. And we can't do it on our own. So what if there is another option? Instead of settling for being the priest or the Levite or forcing ourselves to try to be the Good Samaritan, what if instead 
we choose to identify with the person in the ditch. The one whose ambiguity means that he could be any of us. His anonymity makes him the perfect universal stand-in for all of us. He could be me. He could be you. He could be anyone. What would change in our lives if we understood that we're the ones in need of rescue? We're the ones in need of saving. What if the Good Samaritan isn't us, but it's Jesus? How would it change our lives if we understood that we've been left for dead and brought back to life by a Savior who paid the ultimate cost for us, who crossed the greatest boundary in history, coming from heaven to earth to rescue us, without whom we'd be left helpless and alone? What if we understood that despite the fact that our sin makes us enemies of God, that Jesus still loves us, still heals us, still rescues us? Jesus gave up the comforts and distance of heaven to be proximate to you, to know you. You are so loved that Jesus gave up his life to rescue you. He paid it all to save you. And if this is our perspective, then we'll know that we are profoundly loved. And out of this deep knowledge of our own belovedness can flow a bottomless well of gratitude. So please hear me when I say this. You are loved. You are loved. When we come to understand that central, pivotal, life-transforming, universe-altering truth, well, then, then we can truly go and do likewise. Because without knowing that truth, we may feel inspired for a moment. We may look at the Good Samaritan and want to be the hero, but eventually you'll get tired. You'll give up. You'll run out of you to give because none of us has infinite resources and the cost of real love will be too steep. But the greatest resource we can give to others, that you can give to others, it's actually not yourself. It's Christ working through you because that, that is an infinite resource, a resource of love and solidarity, salvation and grace, justice and truth, rescue and healing, restoration and hope that doesn't run out. And the only way that happens though, the only way that happens is if we first understand that we're the ones in need of rescue ourselves. Yes, we are called to be good Samaritans. But the only way that's ever going to stick, that it's ever going to last, is if we live our lives out of the deep and transformative experience and conviction of our own belovedness and our own need for a Savior. Guilt is a great indicator, but it's a terrible motivator. Do you know what is a great motivator? Being loved. When I sat there, in that coffee shop, feeling ashamed of myself for failing to live up to the ideals of a faith I was about to preach on, I faced a fork in the road. I could dwell in my guilt, or I could try to ignore it and suppress it, or I could acknowledge that my guilt was a gift and a reminder of why I'm called to go and do likewise, and an invitation to acknowledge that I've been generously loved, and to be regularly reminded of God's goodness. So I could slip back into selfish patterns really easily, and I knew that. So I had a big sticker made that read, need prayer? Ask me and I'll pray for you. And I stuck it on the back of my laptop. 
That way, every time I sat down in a coffee shop and pulled my laptop out of my bag, I was reminded of Jesus' deep love for me and his call on my life to love and serve others. I will admit it was awkward. I definitely got some glances and some people weren't exactly smooth about avoiding eye contact with me. It didn't exactly open the floodgates of people stopping to chat, although some did on occasion. But it did do something in me every time I opened my laptop in a public space. It reminded me to be more present and attentive to the Holy Spirit and the people around me. It reminded me to pray for people even if they didn't stop to ask. So let me ask you this. In the season of Lent, where we're reminded of Jesus' life and his great love for us, is there a way that you can regularly remind yourself of that truth? Maybe it's using the Lenten prayer crosses that we gave out on Ash Wednesday. Maybe it's volunteering to serve, or maybe it's something else. Regardless of what you choose, I hope that you receive and remember this truth, not only today, but throughout our Lenten season and beyond, that you are deeply loved. And yes, we are all called to go and do likewise. Amen.